You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, San Francisco barista Kyle Trainer speaks out on Work Week Radio. Isn't that illegal? It is, it is illegal, yes. And I mean, you know, but they don't care. They're going to keep doing it, and we're going to keep doing our thing out here until, you know, they stop. <laughs> then, Workers Beats Gene Lance discusses what we'll be fighting for in 2023. After MLK Day, the legislature will begin. We usually say things like, tremble in fear, people of Texas, your legislature is in session because they have passed such awful things for so long. On Labor Radio, Lisa Skeet, president of the QP Toronto District Council, reports on the historic education workers' struggle in Ontario during the months of November and December. So we said, well, you know what? We're going to go out. We're going to walk out. We've got to stop this because it's us today. It's everyone tomorrow. From Black Work Talk, Carol Fife, former director of the Oakland chapter of the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, and now a council member at the city of Oakland, talks about what it means to bring a movement perspective to an elected position. So to be progressive means being able to wrestle with history so we can come up with the best course of action in the present so we can create a thriving future. If you're not willing to do that and not willing to call what it is, what it is, then I'm looking at you sideways and I'm like, "Mm, mm mm-mm. And what is live action dubbing? You'll find out on the SAG After Podcast. Frequently when you're going into dubbing, almost always, with rare exceptions, you don't know what you're going to say. Frequently, sometimes you don't even know what the show is. If it hasn't been released, not even in the original country where it was originally produced, you don't know what you're going into. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. My name's Kyle Trainer. Uh, I've been at this location for five years. I'm a barista. Um, today we're just out here because Starbucks has continually uh, done their anti-union tactics, um, just shutting down stores, firing partners, and also we still haven't even gotten a bargaining date for our contract. So um, we're just out here letting them know that we're not going to deal with that kind of stuff anymore. So we're shutting... Isn't that illegal? It is, it is illegal, yes. And I mean, you know, but they don't care. They're going to keep doing it, and we're going to keep doing our thing out here until, you know, they stop. <laughs> How long have you worked in Starbucks? Uh, I've been a partner for nine years. They used to say the associates, they really had a say in what was going on. I mean, that was the thing they put yeah, on. Yeah, uh, Starbucks has always kind of put on this, like, kind of progressive mask that they're about the partners. And um, I'd say it was a little bit better back in the day, but it's it's a mask. Like, they're just, they're a corporation like every other corporation, so... 
What are your issues? What are your concerns uh, as a worker? What are you fighting for? Some of the main things we're fighting for are just set schedules because that's one of our biggest things is understaffing. And at this job, when we're understaffed, it gets tough. And then, you know, the customers suffer because of that, too. So we're just asking for things like, you know, better staffing, set schedules, you know, things like that. And it seems like today there are stores around the country who are on strike. Yes, yes. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's solidarity. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, we all coordinated this action together and um, we all stand together. And so it's a national strike today. Yes. How are you coordinated? How are you able to get it together to coordinate? I, you know, you use social media. Yeah, social media is a big thing. Yeah, and you know, we're we're just we're all in touch. It's we're very tight knit. We're a very tight knit group within the union. The solidarity that you have. Apparently, the manager here uh, decided not to come in today. Yeah, did uh, did not see the manager today. Um, apparently, just didn't come come by today. So yeah, uh, I don't I don't know the details of that, but I haven't seen him. So well, if he called in sick, don't you get paid for the day? That. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he shut down. Yeah, no, Maybe. you're right, you're right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should get paid for the day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess that's what a union would do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another reason to have a union. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And what happened the last time you had a strike here? Actually, last time we had our strike, I know a store in Santa Cruz got their bargaining date, so and they hadn't have one yet. So, I mean, you know, they notice. They notice. Um, we're still waiting on ours, but we're going to get it. And you've got how many stores out today? I think over 100 stores are striking for at least one day. I believe 55 are doing the full th uh, three days. And also, I understand that they've some closed down some stores yes. in order. Why don't you talk about that? Starbucks just, they've done things like close down the bathroom, citing like safety issues and stuff like that. But the customers don't get, yeah, the customers don't get to use the bathroom or anything like that. But I, I mean, they gutted our store. That's side thing. I know in Seattle, they closed a unionized location down there too, one of the first ones. Isn't that illegal too? Yes. Yeah, it's yes. <laughs> it's all very illegal, but they don't care. <laughs> well, what about the NLRB? I mean, uh, it seems like if they're flagrantly oh, violating. I mean, a big, huge laundry list of just ULPs uh, by, from the NLRB. So I, well, it's getting worked on. <laughs> so they they must be paying a lot of money to lawyers. Starbucks? Oh yeah, yeah. No, they pay these. Uh, believe it's their Littler lawyers. They pay like they pay them exorbitant amounts of money just to, you know, sit at the table for and bargain for five minutes, and then they just walk away, so. Little Mendelssohn. Yes, Little Mendelssohn, yes, yes. What's yes. the record of that company? I just, I just know they're really high-priced anti-union lawyers. Like, that's that's kind of the main stuff I know about them, yeah. I have a business. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. High-profit business. High-profit, yes, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, if unions, it means, you know, it's less money for them, and they care more about the dollar over people, so. so they would rather pay these lawyers millions mm -hmm. of dollars yep. than, than give you a contract. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Is it an ideological thing? Or a power thing? I mean, what, what is it that, why are they so terrified of the unions? I mean, they're unions in Europe, I mean. I, I mean, you know, if, to t I guess it's, I guess it's more expensive for them to actually take care of their people, I guess, but I mean, you know, I, uh, I personally don't think you should put money over people. It's not okay. <laughs> Do you have support in the community here? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, just people walking by, all of our regulars and stuff that we've had in the store, you know, they've been nothing but supportive. Yeah, just, it's been great. So they want you to win? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long well, you... I mean, I mean, I got to say, too, like, we want, we want our store to be, to be the best that it can. And, you know, I feel like we, the store can be at its full potential with a contract because... I feel like we know better what's good 
what's good for this store, you know? Like, we've been here a long time, and they've, um, they've, really, they've really gutted our store. I feel like they've really taken the life out of it ever since it started. So we just, we, we want the store to be the best it can be. People do to support you. Can I just look up uh, Starbucks Workers United on social media? Um, just kind of follow those and keep up with what's going on um, on the, those sites, too. We have, we have a solidarity fund, stuff like that. Uh, keep yourself updated on what's going on. Uh, welcome back to Labor Radio um, on CKUW 90.3 FM. We're happy to be joined uh, today by uh, Lisa Skeet. She is the president of the Toronto District Council of QP, also an education worker. And she might tell us about some of the other things she does. She's on bargaining units and so on. Um, but she's going to speak with us today about um, the uh, historic struggle of uh, Ontario education workers that uh, sort of wrapped up earlier this month. Uh, so we're super happy to have her with us. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Lisa. Thank you. And I'm excited as well. Great. Um, well, maybe you can get us started uh, for those, and they may be out there. We are in Montreal after all, so people may have been a bit less touched by what happened in Ontario. So maybe you could bring us sort of up to speed and generally on what happened uh, during the months of uh, November and early December for Ontario education workers. Definitely. And I'll just roll it back even further. As you, um, as some would know, th that we're in bargaining now. And so... And we are still in bargaining and um, and uh, sorry, and we had a tumultuous time as many um, would imagine with bargaining with our our um, premier and our minister of education, Minister Lecce, who uh, again is, if I may say, the conservative party. Wages are something that we wanted to increase and we were asking for $3 and 85 cents over a three year period. Um, what we did and wanted to do is make sure that the public know, the community and allies know that when we say that, one, it's not three eighty-five a year, because we always hear, well, you know what, there's people that make $15 an hour, which is our, um, our, you know, um, living wage, which is not even a living wage. Um, so we had to explain that. But one thing we wanted, um, and want did very much is services. There are not enough of us in the schools for the services that are required by the students that we see before us. And again, that's like the EAs, the instructors. You wouldn't imagine. I'm, I'm sure Montreal is the same with immigration and the need for um, English as a second language. Uh, and we started the year with, for example, my local in Toronto and TDSB, Toronto District School Board, being one of the largest school board, F not in the country, with um, closures of 300 classes of, inter of, of English as second language essential skills. Um, we've got a program called International Languages African Heritage in the elementary um, level where children can learn um, a language of choice or heritage or ethnicity, um, 53 of which in African heritage. Uh, it is done after school, which parents like because it's something for their children to have because some of us are working three jobs, right? Um, 300 classes lost, uh, which equates to about 150 people. We're at 300 people now. So we really wanted to stress this was not only about a wage over three years. Um, it was about 
services. It was about wages, though, matching inflation. We all know that, that um, the cost of groceries, forget about entertainment and gas, groceries have gone up ahead of lettuce can be $10. And this time we really said, we have got to mobilize. We've got universities like Brock um, University, McMaster, U of T, and York, who are saying the same thing. We've got to have a wage that meets inflation. What we heard from our premier and minister of education and the conservative party is, uh, we just don't have it. We don't have it. Let's try to meet you another way. Um, um, we can't do this. And so we said, well, you know what? We're going to go out. We're going to walk out. We've got to stop this because it's us today. It's everyone tomorrow. So we've got to have a different kind of mobilization, but we've got to include the parents. We've got to talk. So we um, we endeavor to talk to the public and talk to the people and say, here's what we're dealing with. Here's what we want to say. We don't want students out. We don't want parents who we know who are working two and three jobs, some like ourselves, um, to wonder where are they going to keep their kids because they can't afford to stay home. So what we saw was, and I'm sure you will both um, look at this as a historic mobilization of people, again, labor union, um, parent organizations. Um, and I want to say uh, respect to um, Quebec QP um, and British Columbia QP executives who, and it just touches my heart, and I probably will get emotional during this um, this interview because they and I think for the they asked the membership and they they have all bought one way tickets and stayed at the Sheridan in solidarity with us and went on the street with us and from what I understand hopefully I am correct in this um, the BC Conservative leader also called Premier Ford and said what are you doing. What are you doing? So um, it was historic again. Uh, labor, people, um, provinces, uh, international um, viewpoints. Uh, I believe it was on CNN. It was on international news and, and the, even um, far reaching as Europe, the Caribbean. Uh, it was um, historic and it was the time. It was the timing. I'm sorry that was long-winded, but I wanted to give a bit of a backgrounder on it. So hopefully I did okay. So thanks a lot for listening. And wish everyone a pretty safe and uh, happy holidays this year. Yeah, because that's it for us for 2022. That's a wrap. Hi, folks. This is Stephen Pitts from Blackboard Talk. I hope folks are doing well. I have a co-host here, Lauren Jacobs. Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? You had a birthday last time since I talked to you. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. You had to go and spill the beans to everybody. <laughs> I could tell people how old you are, by the way, and make something up. Um, but I, I won't did. do that. I did. I publicized it on Facebook. There's no shame in this game. You wouldn't want to publicize it again, by the way? 52 and proud. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, you're older than me about, about 30 years, by the way. So, oh, okay. Um, we'll yeah. see what happens. All right. I guess I'm behind. I haven't retired yet, so I got to <laughs> get going. <laughs> so I'm really excited to have our guest on now to talk about how to be about building power. 
Um, I welcome on Carol Fife. Carol, welcome to be on the show. Hello there. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be here. And full announcement is his council person, a council member, Carol Fife. For people who don't know Carol, maybe outside the Bay Area, Carol is many things, but her official title, at least one official title, is she is on the city council here in Oakland and doing a phenomenal job trying to push forward some, some good policies, but also build power as well. Now, I was going to ask you, um, what do you see some of the broad challenges and opportunities of progressive governance? Why don't I first have you define what it means to have progressive governance? What's it actually mean? Ooh, we've talked about this before, Steve. What, what is progressive? What does that mean? And I'm not going to be the one to try to define it right now. I just know everybody in Oakland wants to be one. Um, so if we're going to be a Carol Fife progressive, what does it mean? I wouldn't even use the word. I wouldn't use the word to describe myself. Um, only because it gives some people a reference to what I might mean, but reality causes us to, well, if we're going to deal in reality, and I guess that's subjective to some degree, but um, if we want to live in a safe city or a clean city or an equitable city, then we have to wrestle with the ways that we have not been that to date. And I think it takes someone who's willing to, um, to challenge the existing status quo in order to create equitable progress, not just for a small few, because that's what we reproduce in this country and in, in every corner of the nation. But if we're really talking about progress for everyone, that means some folks got to give it up a little bit, right? That means we have to do things radically different, but that is the only way I think we can actually have a semblance of, um, I guess, sanity in, in, in this space in order for people to address crime. Like that's one of the biggest issues on people's minds right now. You cannot do that without looking at how communities have been disadvantaged and disinvested in. So don't talk to me about an uptick in crime if you're not talking to me about closing schools, disinvesting in schools, not paying teachers, taking people's homes, not providing health care, and all of the other ways that wealth has been extracted from communities. And so if we're having a, a conversation devoid of origins, then we're not having a real conversation. So to be progressive is to be able to look at what's happened for a Carol progressive, if we have to give it a name. Um, <laughs> means being able to wrestle with history so we can come up with the best course of action in the present so we can create a thriving future. If you're not willing to do that and not willing to call what it is what it is, then I, I'm looking at you sideways and I'm like, mm, mm-mm. But given the definition now of a Carol Five progressive, how do you execute that? What are the challenges and actually bring that to, to fruition? It's, it's, whew. Um, that's why I need you all to help me. Come on, Lauren, Stephen, help me out and figure out like, how do we do this? Because it can't be Carol that's doing it because there's a huge push right now to co-op the work that I'm doing, um, to water it down, um, to say uh, that I'm somehow corrupt. This happens with women oftentimes in, in public office, not, not just corrupt, but um, somehow uh, I, I, I'm noticing on Twitter, I get a lot of white men saying that I've been bought and sold, which I find some like on a, on a deeply cellular level, um, some problem with the way that I'm, I'm referred to. Um, 
but how we get there, um, how we get to this level of progressive, of course, we, we have to organize for it. We have to get better about shifting the narrative and doing the work and being visible about what that looks like. But there's some deep work that individuals have to do, um, as well as uh, ourselves uh, who are going to push for something different uh, to hold our allies accountable, who, you know, get it, it's, it's easy to get scared in these positions it's if you're connected to the position. It's easy to get scared of losing a title if you're connected to the title versus the reason that you have it in the first place. So uh, there's powerful entities that put in money into elections and campaigns and um, messaging and creating a reality. We have to be as fervent about those um, organizations and individuals who are often in opposition to us to out-organizing them. And we don't tend to have as much money. So we have to be really smart and strategic about how we build that power to create a so-called progressive base to get done what we need to get done. That's all for this episode of Black Work Talk. Till next time, stay safe and be well. everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree-Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And I'm Ben Whitehair, Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA. Live action dubbing is an exciting and growing opportunity in the entertainment field. By some estimates, professional artists are dubbing more than 100,000 hours of content into English and Spanish every year. It really is astounding. With streaming companies bringing foreign language content into millions of homes in the U.S., they have created an enormous pipeline of potential work for dubbing industry veterans and new artists. Ben, recently you moderated a PTEOE panel of live action dubbing experts to discuss this burgeoning trend. I did indeed. I had the pleasure of speaking to actors Asaf Cohen and Courtney Sauls, director Matthew Collar, casting director Dorit Simone, and producer and director Nell Tier. It was a great discussion, and even as a performer who has done a lot of dubbing work myself, even I learned a lot. This is such an exciting opportunity for our members, and I'm really excited for all of you to hear this discussion. Enjoy. Matt, I'm curious. There are likely many folks who aren't familiar with how dubbing works. Can you walk us through like the basic mechanics of the process? So... When we think about dubbing, you have to understand that it's something that's been around and been happening around the world for so long. Think about those Italian spaghetti westerns and these great French films. And there's a whole industry that exists overseas um, where they've been taking content from the States and dubbing it into Italian and French. But when we talk about English dubbing, which is something that's relatively new, that gets to be an interesting conversation because we kind of got to make it up, which was fun, and to figure out how, what that was. But a really basic idea here is that there's these great international shows being made in Spain, in Sweden, in Germany, and Poland, all around the world. And big streamers like Netflix 
Amazon, Disney, they have to take that now and localize it for the states. And so basically what we do is we get to take those great series like Money Heist or La Casa de Papel and create performances in English by translating it from the Spanish to the English. And basically what happens is there's three processes. There's uh, casting, there's recording, and there's mixing. So it runs just like a normal TV show, except you're not shooting in front of a camera. So the casting process is exactly the same though. Like we find actors who fit the roles. We uh, record scene by scene, like you would do on camera, but everything's in pieces. And then eventually we mix it and put it all together. So it's kind of like this magical international puzzle that we, we have the pleasure of creating. Asaf, I'm curious to hear from you, any differences in how you approach your performances for live action dubbing? versus other traditional voiceover work, on-camera roles, you know, you're, you've performed in so many different mediums, and I'm curious if you have a difference in approach for, for dubbing. Thank you. When you're, when you're working on camera, if you're fortunate enough to work on camera, then by the time you show up on set, you should be off book. You already know all your lines, you know, you understand the framework, and now you're there to, to play. You're there to you know, to work off the other actors, to listen to the director and to, to, to bring your creativity and to intertwine it with the vision of the director. And if it's an established program, then you kind of understand the world. If you're going into a law and order type show, if you're going to a multi-camp sitcom, you understand a little bit about timing and so forth. Frequently when you're going into dubbing, almost always, with rare exceptions, you don't know what you're gonna say. Frequently, sometimes you don't even know what the show is. They have code names. And so you can Google it. You can try to figure out and maybe you do. But if it hasn't been released, not even in the original country where it was originally produced, you don't know what you're going into. So you need to really you have to listen. You have to watch the performance, of course, and really try to figure out what is this performer doing? What are they responding to? And really trust your director. And if you're fortunate enough, I know I'm sounding like because they know they they've watched the material. They understand They've had the conversations. You've got to really, really trust them. There are a lot of times I'll do a take and I'm like, that was it. That was it. Because my little actor ego goes, oh, that was great. And then they'll go, that's really, really good. But what if we try one where it's not that, it's this. And I go, okay, maybe I'm, don't necessarily, of course, I'll play a game and then, and then I'll watch it. And then later on, as I watch more of the content, I'll be like, oh, okay, right. That's why that happened. Okay, the director clearly knew uh, what was going on. So you really have to... Uh, be a little comfortable being uncomfortable, not knowing a lot. And that, that's exciting. And you have to be a little bit more humble because when it, you're originating the role, it's you and the director, right? And the other actors that you're working off here, but here it's all that. And you have to honor the performance that the original uh, actor or actress did before you. And that is it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon, all the way from England. I produce the show here in frigid Washington, D.C., and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips out there on the northwest coast up in the Seattle area. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Happy holidays, stay active, and always stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.